Welcome to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the Our Data, Who's Democracy episode. I'm James Long, host of this podcast and associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. In today's world, it seems that companies and governments are collecting a lot of data about all of us, about our identities, our habits, what we like, what we buy, where we go, and even whether we vote. Perhaps some of this so-called datafication is benign and simply helps algorithms on tech platforms better curate content we'd like to see based on our past likes and retweets. But perhaps some of it is nefarious if governments collect our data and can track our movements or try to identify targets for oppression and human rights abuses. While control over our personal data may not sound too obviously related to elections and democracy, I disagree because oftentimes companies and governments have gathered our data without our consent. And we have yet as a society to really deliberate whether and how to regulate data harvesting at the local, national, and global level. Because consent and deliberation are hallmarks of democracy, how should we understand the social and political effects of the datafication of human life? This is a question posed in a new paper titled, We Haven't Gone Paperless Yet, Why the Printing Press Can Help Us Understand Data and AI, published at the Association for the Advancement of AI Conferences, by Wendy Wong and Nicholas Weller, my two guests today. Wendy Wong is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, where she also serves as the research lead at the Schwartz Reisman Institute for Technology and Society and the Canada Research Chair in Global Governance and Civil Society. Her main research interests lie at the crossroads of international relations, comparative politics and human rights, with particular focus on the politics of organization, why human beings choose to act collectively, their choices to go about doing it, and the effects of these choices. Her first book, Internal Affairs, looks at the role that non-governmental organizations have played in the realm of human rights. In addition to numerous other published academic papers, Wendy is working on a new book about datafication and human rights in the digital age. I am pleased to have Professor Wendy Wong joining me today from Toronto. Hi, Wendy. Hi, James. Our second guest and Wendy's co-author is Nicholas Weller. Nick is an associate professor of political science at the University of California, Riverside. An expert in American politics, research methodology, and applied computer science, Nick studies how networks affect behavior with a focus on communication and coordination. With Jeb Barnes, Nick has published the book, Finding Pathways, Mixed Methods Research for Studying Causal Mechanisms, along with numerous other papers. And recently, Nick and Wendy have co-authored an op-ed at the conversation titled, Facebook is stepping in where governments won't on free expression. I'm pleased to have Professor Nicholas Weller joining today from California. Hi, Nick. Hi, James. So Wendy and Nick, I wanted to do an episode on datafication and democracy for a while. And I think your new paper does a nice job of laying the groundwork for some of the fundamentals. But I also know there's a lot of jargon and technical terms that I think we should try to identify and define first. So before we get into the sort of big picture democracy stuff, what is datafication? So I think an easy way to understand datafication is data that can be stored in a computer. So it's quantified and it's binary, as in it's zeros and ones. And I think that the data that, that the processes of datafication that we're most interested in is the data that come from people or that are about people. And so it's not all data that exists in the world, but it would be data about people or from people um, that can be stored in a computer. I think that's the easiest way to, to think about datafication. And so examples of this can be email, it could be text messages, it could be heartbeats on your Fitbit, 
really any information that is stored and accessible either by your computer or by your various uh, other devices. So how much of an imprint are human beings making kind of day to day in terms of producing these types of data? Like how many times a day am I producing a piece of data with a binary code that's going into a computer somewhere? I mean, the statistics on this are pretty crazy, right? And there's, you know, it's like megabytes per second. And so the way I usually think about it is you're basically taking a digital photo with an old iPhone. So like an iPhone 5S every second of the day that you're alive. And so this is sort of like a, it's also not evenly distributed in the world. So that's something to keep in mind. We're producing this vast amount of data. And really we're talking about about 50% of the world being online at this point, or at least being connected enough to be producing data at this rate. So it's an incredible amount. It's hard to wrap your head around, but it's basically constant. And you can assume as some of my colleagues might say, you're shedding data every second you're alive. The other thing that is worth, I think, keeping in mind in this context is that it's not always or maybe mostly it's not active choices you're making to share or have this data collected. So if you were to walk down my street in Glendale, California, as you walk up the street, you would walk by lots of different houses that have either Google Nest or Ring doorbells. And every time you do that, you're being recorded by probably each one of those that is then you know, going somewhere up to a server in the sky and that information can then be retrieved by the users and the users can then share that information with you know, whomever they choose to use it with, to share it with. And I think the extent to which our behavior is being datafied in this sense is sort of um, not well understood by us on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, the extent to which normal things that we do, like taking a dog for a walk, are being datafied and then archived somewhere for potentially for the use of people and or maybe just to take up space. I would think just to add to that too, Nick, it's it's not just things you're aware of, right? And that's really, uh, there's been a lot of focus on how much data is actually being collected from our cell phones. So just the act of carrying your cell phone around means that there are, you know, tens of apps that are tracking your behavior, whether that's where you are or what other apps you have open or what your phone is passively doing in the background. So this is, I mean, these, the fact is the data that are being generated are often not something where we're even explicitly participating in. But then, I mean, isn't it fairly benign? So Nick, you take your dog for a walk and somebody catches it on camera or whatever. I mean, so what, who cares? Like, is this, why is this a, a huge concern? And are, aren't we shedding data all the time? And like, how would I know that that's gonna negatively affect me? I mean, if I'm shedding so much data, you know, and but something happens to me, like, how do I, how do I tie those two things together? And if all of us are shedding this much data, how, how much does it really matter? So I guess that, uh, I mean, this sounds a little bit like when someone says, uh, you know, why are you worried about people surveilling everything you do as long as you don't do anything wrong, right? This sort of has that same, that same tenor to it. And I, I guess that, you know, I can understand that on, on one hand, maybe on one and a half hands or something like that. But I think that it fundamentally changes our relationship with the world around us when we're being surveilled consistently. So Here's an example perhaps of where we might think this is a good thing. So not 
a month ago, the house, two houses down from me, the door was kicked in. People stole a bunch of watches off the front credenza type thing and went running down the street. The cops showed up, you know, told five minutes later, it was very quick. But what the cops then did is proceeded to walk up and down the block and ask everybody for the film that they had had from their Google Nest or their Ring video. And from that, they were able to identify the suspects in this crime. Right. So that sounds presumably right, like a maybe a good use of this datafication, right? You catch the bad guy. But I'm sure that we can think of examples um, where we where that same type of thing is used in ways that are not so good, right? Where people are watching behaviors maybe that are that they don't intend to be public behaviors or that just we don't need to have in some sense our entire lives recorded in that same way, even if what we're doing is benign. So I guess that I, I worry or I, I would be I would want to think about carefully, um, are we willing to make that trade-off or do we what under what conditions do we want to make the trade-off where we say that moving our behavior from what was ostensibly private or at least not archivable behavior to fully sort of or potentially public and easily archived behavior becomes the norm in a society. I'm not sure we know what the consequences of that are. So I don't know that I would say, I'm okay with it off the bat. I would add to that just, um, you know, I think we wanna think about who is doing the data collection. So, you know, data is never uh, valueless or without interest because someone has to go to the trouble of figuring out what activity or behavior they want to collect and then go about figuring out ways to collect that. So as social scientists, I think we're well aware of this process of, figuring out what type of data we're interested in and then figuring out the ways that we can best collect it. And I think if you think about that more broadly, who is collecting the data right now? It's largely corporations, um, which you know you can think about as, as maybe an alternative to governments collecting this information. I'm not saying it's necessarily good or bad, but certainly you can think about corporate interests as perhaps not being necessarily the same as your interests. And so that's one way to think about it. I also think what's really interesting is historically human beings have lived and died and done all sorts of mundane things like get up and take the dog for a walk or go outside of their home without that behavior being recorded in archives somewhere. And the radical shift we have now is that these behaviors are now tracked. Now, the possibility of using that data for good is there as, you know, as Nick pointed out, but the possibility of that data being used for in ways that are against our own personal interests or against society's interests are also there. Well, one of the things you guys do in the paper, which I think is really interesting, is make this comparison between datafication in the modern world and the, and the invention and the proliferation of the printing press. Can you kind of talk us through why that's a useful analogy, the printing press, to think about datafication? I mean, there are a couple of ways I'll start off. I think one is that what the printing press did fundamentally was change who had access to information. So before the printing press, information was largely conveyed by elites and very few people had literacy uh, as, a, as a, a skill. Um, and what the printing press did was make information much more accessible and widely available, which had the effect of then changing political and social relationships. In other words, changing who had access to what information. So that's a really important way to think about why, what, you know, what is the sort of shift that 
putting things on paper, literally, as opposed to having an oral culture, for example, would change the nature of relationships between people and change the way that people have access to, to knowledge. And one of the things we tried to do in the, in the paper is say, well, look, now that we've datafied a lot of information about people and that our world is, is fundamentally made up of, of lots of data, that's also changing people's access to information. And that's also changing power in, in terms of political and social distribution, because who is collecting the data now is not states, which is what our system has, you know, the, the states in, in our political system have been dominant. Now, the entities that have data are, are companies. They're the ones collecting the data and writing the algorithms to analyze that data. Have you guys seen District 9, the movie? I have not. The sci-fi movie about South Africa. So I, I was re-watching it last night and I had forgotten that in the, the, the movie is a basically like the sort of allegory about apartheid and how, you know, you can keep separate classes of people like physically separated from each other. And the movie is like 10 years old, but they show there's this alien ship that arrives and these aliens that the basically the South African government views as like a migrant type of threat and they physically separate them from the rest of the residents of Johannesburg. But I had forgotten in the movie that who actually does it is a corporation, that there's a private company that sets mm -hmm. up these camps for these aliens, um, that they physically put them there and then they're the ones that monitor them and collect data on them. And that, that basically a corporation is taking over. And I feel like that's a, that's a common theme in sci-fi is that like, it's not just about the state doing something anymore. It's like the oversized role of corporations kind of taking over in ways that people are just sort of like, I mean, we think of corporations as being very important and, and, and powerful, but like literally the ones that are putting people in cages at the behest of the government. Yeah, thanks for raising that very old movie reference. It's not that old, it's like 10 years old and it was nominated for Best Picture. And our, student, our, our Gen Z students need to see these movies that Gen Xers and millennials know about. No, I'm glad you pulled out that nugget of detail because I was just like, this is an alien movie. I don't know why you're referring to this. <laughs> Nick, did you want to say something? No, not not on that. I haven't seen the movie, so I have nothing to say about that. I mean, the only thing I'd say, James, is I think that, uh, you know, I think the sort of uh, the combination of power between the public sector and the private sector is something you do see in the datafication and the AI. So, uh, you know, Wendy would be better to talk about this, but Wendy has written before about Clearview AI and their collecting of facial imagery and the use that that has had in policing and other things which in some ways, you know, it has this sort of dystopian element that is oh, present say, in- Say what Clearview is. You're talking about the airport screener? Uh, well, Wendy, you, you have a much better sense of this than I do. I mean, you've written about it, right? Yeah, so Clearview AI is a company that largely sells its services in facial recognition to law enforcement agencies. So they became really famous um, or well-known rather after January 6th, because the usage rates of their service went skyrocketing as police struggled to identify the rioters, right? So Clearview AI was not without controversy before this. Um, and the reason they're controversial is because they've collected by their own account, 3 billion faces in their database, which makes them very useful to law enforcement. And they have a technology that uh, is superior in terms of facial recognition. So uh, a lot of facial recognition technology before you needed to have 
very, you know, straight on uh, direct pictures of people in order for the algorithm to properly read faces. And so Clearview AI can actually figure out who is in the photos based on imperfect, grainy, off-center photos. So um, they've developed this technology, but the way they've collected the faces is by fundamentally scraping the internet, which uh, violates a lot of websites like Facebook or Venmo or YouTube, it violates their terms of service. So what's made Clearview very controversial, in addition to its very large database of faces or facial data, is that uh, they have gone about constructing that data set in ways that people disagree with. But again, like, let me push back in the sense that, well, if this helped law enforcement use facial recognition on all these social media posts of the Capitol riot, which when you you written about, um, or you mentioned Venmo, right? Like, it, it sounds like with this Matt Gates scandal unfolding, like there's a digital trace on Venmo of, of evidence that may be used in the, if he's charged with anything related to child sex trafficking. So it sounds like law enforcement can use these data in really important ways. And so, you know, isn't it better for human rights then for law enforcement to have that capability if they can use that to find out where, you know, members of the, the riot live and prosecute them? I mean, it's useful for law enforcement for, for criminal prosecution, right? But that criminal, you know, criminal law and criminal justice are different from human rights. So just to, you know, dig a little bit into the history and purpose of human rights. I mean, human rights fundamentally were set up as a bulwark against governments. And so they're designed to create space so that governments can't overreach and abuse the rights of individuals and groups within society. And so if you think about it, what technologies like Clearview AI fundamentally do is extend the arm of law enforcement potentially and most likely against populations that are already marginalized in, in society. And so it has the potential to magnify human rights concerns. So like uh, racism, um, you know, facial recognition technology has been demonstrated pretty convincingly in a number of studies to be very, in, in, very incompetent at recognizing black faces and in some cases, black female faces. Um, and, and also Asian faces. And so the question is, you know, it, it, yes, of course, it's, it's good for law enforcement in some ways. And, and you noted the Matt Gates situation. Um, that's a very prominent case right now. But I think we have to look a step back a little bit from some of these cases that are pretty egregious and think about in general, how does our life fundamentally change as a result of datafication? And I do think that the, the potential to, um, to sort of threaten human rights is much greater in the sense that, you know, Nick brought up constant surveillance. I think that's, that's really a fundamental thing that actually human rights are trying to defend against, which is people feeling stifled in their lives. I mean, we should be living lives of, of human dignity. And the way I like to think about it is actually human autonomy, right? We have we should have the right to choose as much as we are able to the way that we want our lives to be lived. And I think that's actually what human rights are about. It's about protecting and providing the conditions under which people can freely choose. Whether that means don't, you know, you have the right against torture, right? You should live a life where torture is not a threat, whether you have uh, representation in a fair in a fair trial, or that you have access to basic education and shelter and food. I mean, these are all fundamental human rights. 
Well, one of the things that you guys go into in the paper is the other political and social effects that datafication may have in society. So Nick, could you talk us through what those effects are that we should be warned about? Because I think one of the nice things about your paper is it's sort of like the applied computer science world and the social science world don't always talk to each other. And I think you two are unique in kind of making those connections and those conversations. So how, what are the effects of datafication on political and social life? Well, so let's, let me start with the caveat that I think we're still pretty early into what datafication will look like in, you know, in 20 years. So, uh, you know, take it, take it for what it's worth. But I think you see sort of two trends uh, happening in as a result of datafication. And I think they actually, in this sense, parallel some of what we saw with the printing press. And so one trend in datafication is a, a level of decentralization where people can now become their own providers of information, right? You are you can create your own website, you can push out information, you can do your own synthetic work and um, tell people your story that you wanna tell them, right? You can self-publish if you choose. So there's this level of decentralization um, and certainly among the sort of like uh, highly sophisticated technologists of the world, they envision a much greater level, I think, of decentralization that's brought about by uh, cryptocurrencies and all sorts of things that allows people to potentially move away from the power of the state in a lot of ways. And so decentralizing uh, both political but also economic power to some extent. But I think the flip side of that is also really important. And it goes back to, I think, what you and Wendy were just talking about. So you get the uh, sort of massive combination of an organization like Clearview AI with American policing forces, or you get the uh, Facebook uh, collect the you know the size a company the size of Facebook, essentially beginning to perhaps write regulatory rules with the uh, support of the federal government in such a way that gives Facebook an incredible edge over any potential future competitors, or you get the ability of Google to purchase its competitors to the extent to which it's very hard for them, for anyone to compete uh, with Google in certain contexts or Microsoft doing the same. And so that's sort of at the same time that there is uh, potentially great decentralization. There's also this, I think, increasing concentration of power that isn't just in the private sector. It actually is in various ways, a combination of uh, power in the private and the public sector. And so those two simultaneous trends that in some ways push in opposite directions, I think are in general, what I think of as the, what the, the future of datafication, what exactly that looks like, I, you know, time will tell, I suppose. So I wanted to talk about consent and I, cause I think there's like a, a little bit of a paradox here, which is that a lot of what you, you two have described, which I think is true, is like, there are a lot of ways in which our, our data are being collected that we don't, we're not consenting to, right? And we don't even have knowledge of. But at the same time, all of us are participating in these systems and actually are trying to leverage them, right? We're, we don't have to be on Facebook, but billions of people are. We don't have to be on Twitter, but I, I go to Twitter to, to read the news. And so, so on this question of autonomy or Nick, what you describe with decentralization, you can kind of create your own thing. I, I find this weird tension between, on the one hand, we're not consenting to a lot of things, but on the other hand, we're actually actively participating. And a lot of times with knowledge that are, I mean, it's hard, it's hard for me to imagine that American voters after 2016 
you know, don't know that they could be reading something that is literally misinformation or fake news on Facebook. I mean, it was publicized all over the news. At, at a certain point, you, you, you got to take responsibility for it and people seem to enjoy it. So how do we understand that tension between consent, not really consenting to part of it, but then actively engaging it? And, and you know, to be honest, like a lot of people love it. I mean, there's a reason these, these companies have so much money and so many users. I think you're pointing to a really important ambivalence. I mean, this is the ambivalence I, I sort of feel in the writing of my book, which is, you know, I, I think datafication cuts both ways, as you said it. And I think we have benefited a lot from um, these technologies. I just think about, you know, when I started graduate school and now how much easier it is. Well, I, I haven't done this in a while because of the pandemic, but, you know, doing field work, right, has gotten a lot more straightforward with datafication and with the advancement of a lot of these, you know, communications technologies that we're talking about. So it, it's not all bad, but at the same time, I do think what you're saying, James, there is actually a bit, I think you're being a bit flipped because I don't think people are aware of the types of data that are being collected or the, the really the extent. I mean, I think when you, when you post on Facebook or you tweet, that's a fairly obvious way. But the extent to which data are being collected about passive activities of ours or you know, what, what Shoshana Zuboff calls behavioral surplus in her book, I mean, it's, it's pretty intense. And these are behaviors that probably we're not exactly aware of you know, why they would be useful or even if we know why they're useful, um, we're, we can't necessarily opt out of something. So for example, like what, what links you click on or how long it takes you to read a news story. Um, these are things that are being collected or, you know, again, location data is a huge one where you wander around in the world with your smart device. Um, so, so I think part of it is it's that you can't opt out of it. And I think the other part of it is that then you feel like, okay, well, I don't want to be without my cell phone. In fact, that's got a lot of information on it that I can't remember myself, you know, appointments, notes to self, emails from colleagues. So I need that device. And on the other hand, that device is revealing information about me that I might not want others to know about. I might not want people to know where I go every minute of the day, not because I'm doing something wrong, but because that's actually nobody's business, right? So, so I think that's, that's something. And I do think this issue of consent has become so overwhelming. I mean, how are we supposed to consent to these myriad activities that are being tracked? And so, you know, some companies like Apple are taking a, a harder stance on this. Um, they're in, Apple's introducing um, something that they call the app tracking transparency, transparency, um, you know, initiative basically that is going to allow people with iPhones at least to, in some ways, opt out of, you know, inter-app tracking, which is is a way to sort of make make transparent or make or surface the the fact that, you know, it's not just things you're doing explicitly, and this is sort of something that we you know we talked about a few minutes ago. It's that it's happening even even when you're passively wandering out in the world and you're not aware, I think this lack of awareness is really challenging. And two, even if you were aware, it's the scope uh, and the scale of the data that are being collected. That's pretty hard for us to grapple. So I think, no, go ahead, Nick. 
Well, I was going to say, I think the other thing to think about here is we, we have built a sort of like in the US, a, a rights-based infrastructure primarily around protecting us from the government, right? And so when we think about something like the right to privacy, it's a, you know, to the extent, I mean, I, it's not really in the constitution, but to the extent that which it sort of exists in the constitution or has been interpreted to exist, it's really about protecting us as citizens from invasion of our privacy by the government. But I think what Wendy is bringing up and, you know, something like Clearview AI scraping all of our photos against the terms of service, even if we believe that we had consented in a meaningful way into those terms of service, the fact that they, that information can then be harvested at contra the terms of service and we have no recourse suggests that our legal infrastructure around something like the right to privacy may not be properly equipped for what the 21st century is going to hold in terms of new bigger threats to the rights of to our right of privacy than than sort of quote unquote just the government was of the 20th century. Well, that was going to be my next question. I mean, Nick, you're an expert in American politics. Wendy, you've kind of worked more on in international politics. But what are the current regulatory approaches? I mean, is this such the wild, wild west of regulation that governments haven't really thought this out? What do you guys see as the difference between kind of healthy, strong democracies or authoritarian governments? Um, what are the models that you look to? Or is everything just kind of so new and so dynamic that you know, the, there's no real regulation at this point. So, I mean, it's it depends where you are, right? There is some, so first of all, I think the past few weeks has unleashed a, quite a flurry of, of regulatory attempts. So, you know, in Canada, we're working on um, trying to regulate big tech. In the U.S., there's talks about rewriting Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, um, and and the, you know the EU has has you know got the uh, the the privacy regulations around around what what uh, co corporations can collect in terms of personal information. And, you know, California has a version of that. So, you know, it's not that there's no regulation, but my, you know, my take on this is that a lot of the focus has been on things like privacy or consent. And to me, these are, they're both definitely part of the human rights corpus, the human rights framework, but they're a very small subset of what I think is actually potentially uh, being affected by, by datafication. And so part of what I'm trying to do with my book and, and in some of the other writing I'm doing is to encourage people to think about human rights, not just as an issue of privacy or an issue of consent or even freedom of expression, right? But thinking about how datafication can have effects on who gets housing and who gets jobs. And we, there's a lot of journalistic work on on how, and thinking about the effects of, of employment, because now resumes are being run through artificial intelligence, you know, algorithms as a pre-screening device before a human being even sees your, your, your qualifications. So these have huge knock-on effects on a whole panoply, a whole variety of things that I think people, A, should care about, but also B, they're very much part of what we mean when we say we're trying to protect human rights. So so that's sort of my, my take is that there's been some work in trying to regulate the, the you know, effects of datafication and, and also big tech's grasp of, of everyone's data and what they do with it. 
But on the other hand, I do think that the focus has been pretty narrow and, and maybe for good reason. Nick, I know you have worked a lot on sort of regulatory regimes and how regulation happens in the US. Isn't one of the issues that all the people that are tasked with regulating are Luddites? <laughs> like, you know, if you, I mean, I, whatever the, you know, every time Zuckerberg or whoever goes and testifies before Congress, it's like the senators can barely figure out, remember the password for their iPhone. And they, it's clear that some of them have no idea what the internet is. And so I wonder if that's a part of it too. And if that's, you know, like what, what that sort of means about how we should think about the degree to which a democratic country is going to regulate this in a way that's why, simply because the people passing legislation really don't live in the 21st century the way everybody else does. I don't think that's probably unique to this domain. I assume, you know, if we were having this conversation around the robber barons that we would, could have said they also don't understand trains or if it was, you know, the Goodyear tire, we could have also said they don't understand the production of oil and tires. So I think the general idea that our legislators are relatively ignorant of the things about which we ask them to regulate is probably true across a lot of domains. Um, now, certainly that raises problems for us. I think in the context of, of this current sort of technological regulation, um, I think that the sort of challenge is, um, is sort of twofold, I guess. And so the first part of the challenge I would say goes to what Wendy is talking about, which is that I'm not sure we've even conceptualized what we want out of our regulatory regime in these domains. So we don't even, it's not just that like, they don't know how to use their iPhone, right? But it's that it, from a sort of social perspective, it's not clear to me that we know what we want because I don't think we even understand what the consequences are. So I think that's, that's one issue. The other issue is that when you look at uh, spending by tech-based interest groups or technological companies, you know, not surprisingly, it's dominated by the five or six biggest of those actors, right, in terms of their spending on lobbying and whatnot. And so I think one of the things that's missing in tech regulation is uh, the voice of the, the non-tech actors, whoever those might be. Um, and I don't know who that will end up who that needs to be, who it should be in some sense. But I think um, it's also, I think that is also a part of this sort of broader conversation that Wendy and I are trying to raise, which is trying to get people to think about what the consequences of datafication are or possible consequences so that we can think about what we should be doing today in terms of perhaps reimagining the legal or regulatory structures that we would need. And I think that's, that's the to me, that's still the bigger issues. We're still at that sort of very early stage of this process. Well, Nick, I think that gets to the second aspect of democracy that datafication reminds me of. The first one is consent. The second one is deliberation. And, you know, on, on weighty matters, we hope in a democracy that it's more than lobbyists and legislators that deliberate on something. Um, I mean, literally, they deliberate on what to put in a piece of legislation that then passes. But as a society, we like to deliberate on things as well. What do you guys see as the form and content of what that might look like um, and what's happened and where you see the potential for as a body politic in the United States or also, I guess, at a global level, too? How do we deliberate over this issue and what does that look like? Nick, do you want to respond or should I talk? Uh, no, I mean, I am, I, I don't know. How, 
I am skeptical of the notion of widespread public deliberation when you think about what the sort of standard, what we know about what people know about politics and their interest and engagement with politics. I'm skeptical as a Californian who watches Californians vote on ballot measures. And prior to that, as an Oregonian who watched Oregonians vote on ballot measures and uh, can't figure out as someone who has voted in both of those contexts for almost 30 years now, how uh, I'm ever supposed to understand these ballot measures or what to do unless someone directly just tells me what to do, which isn't any notion of deliberation that we're familiar with. Um, so I guess I, I, I hear what James is saying and the, the sort of need for sort of something more resembling a public discourse about this, but I don't have a lot of faith in um, what that looks like or how it happens, I guess. So Nick, I, I, you know, <laughs> I'm not supposed to be asking questions, but I also feel like this is this is where a lot of your expertise comes in, right? It's this what I know about voting behavior and how voters think about decisions is based. You know, we need heuristics, we need shortcuts, right? And and so so part in part, you know, to answer James's question, it's I think there's a there's a lack of ability for many of us to discern what a credible source is now, because there are so many sources out there of information. And I think that's, you know, one of the last things we touch on in our paper is that, you know, there's been a, in a way you can think about the fact that there's an abundance of information out there available now for people to access. So that's a good thing. You want to, you know, you want to create a diversity of sources. On the other hand, because of the way algorithms channel people into by their interests or predicted interests, you create what's been called filter bubbles, right? People end up trapped getting more of what the, the, the you know, algorithm, algorithm thinks they want. So then your information could be really tainted. And this is, we see this with information camp, uh, campaigns during political elections, but also with the pandemic, right? The spread of, of misinformation about vaccines and, and COVID-19 itself. And so I do think one of the things that I think about a lot and I don't know a lot about is how voters or people in society adjudicate between different information sources now, because I think a lot of us rely on shortcuts and experts to tell us what to do, as Nick was saying. We, you know, we have reasonable evidence from sort of a, a prior period that people were pretty good about adjudicating between whether or not to believe something published in the New York Times compared to the National Enquirer, right? That when you when you did experiments along those lines, that people were much more likely, as you'd expect, well, you'd expect, but maybe not, uh, but to believe the New York Times and have to have their opinions and their beliefs affected by something in the New York Times compared to the National Enquirer. I'm not sure that that media environment translates super well to the current media environment in that. I'm not sure with the proliferation of sources that exist that the that many consumers yet have their own heuristic about who of those sources is actually trustworthy. And I don't know if that's a, you know, a to be developed sense, right? So if we go back 150 years or maybe even 200 years at this point to the beginnings of, uh, you know, the sort of original partisan penny press, the same thing may have existed, right? Where maybe consumers weren't very good. There was just the sort of so many newspapers that hadn't sort of centralized or consolidated around a few reputable sources that maybe that was a reasonable analogy 
to our current media environment. And over time, that got centralized into a smaller number of more reputable sources. I don't know if that happens this time or not, um, but I think that we do also have evidence about the current time period that people aren't great with ad, uh, adjudicating source quality. And in fact, there's some evidence um, that people actually prefer lower quality sources uh, when those sources agree with them. And so you sort of have this motivated reasoning that then drives their interpretation of the source quality. And if that's what people are doing, that supposes, I think, a really big problem for information consumption and persuasion and knowledge. I'm curious to hear what you guys, what the two of you think about something that I've <clears throat> I've been just trying to bang on about a lot, which is, you know, I think studies show that sort of the boomer generations are those that are most likely to spread fake news or um, believe misinformation online. And there's probably not very much we can do for the boomers at this point. But why do we not in universities teach data and information literacy? I mean, I remember like in, in elementary school, like literally learning how to use a library, like learning how to go through it, not just as a matter of like going through a card catalog, but then how to triangulate resources and the rest of it. We don't teach that anymore. And just like information literacy, and it's not, I think it's not so much that like, okay, read the New York Times or the Washington Post, don't read the Inquirer. It's just like the process by which you adjudicate good information from bad information, I, I don't think we, we teach. And, you know, Wendy, you had mentioned the COVID pandemic. I mean, you guys will appreciate this. Like, I'm pretty sure math died with COVID. Like, Americans don't even know the difference between levels and rates, right? You would constantly see, like, the you, if you talk about levels, but then you don't divide it by some, uh, you know, amount of population, right? Then saying that 10 million people or 5 million people were tested, right? Like, Trump kept saying this. Like, he would always go to a level that worked for him, and he would go for a rate that would work for him. But people don't even understand the difference between a level and a rate, right? And they don't understand why you would divide some, divide some numerator by a denominator to get something like, well, what is the real rate of testing in the United States? How does that compare to the rate of testing in South Korea? Right. And so it's just like very simple stuff like that. They can't even adjudicate claims made by various parties to even do things that they presumably have a lot of incentive to get right, which are things that matter for their health. Right. Or even just like trying to explain to the American public what vaccine efficacy means. Right. Americans lack the information and the data competencies to understand that in a very straightforward manner. And that's really in evidence, I think, by the by the like just by what normal people are saying in everyday conversations. So I, I think the irony here actually, James, is I think that uh, I okay, so back up. I have no data to prove this. I have anecdote, but uh, my <laughs> sense is my sense is from blowing talking, the data and information literacy credibility. Yeah. <laughs> so so but my sense is from talking to people, people are more likely than ever to sort of want to cite I saw a study that or I, I saw a scientific study that said this, but there's no, there's no evaluation of what the scientific study was or how it happened. And you actually saw this with COVID, right? You saw these like doctors out of Fresno or Bakersfield or somewhere go online and have all of this like study information about how COVID was a farce and it was no more dangerous than, you know, getting the common flu or something to that effect. And all sorts of people were citing this as if because it was a study. So it's sort of this weird thing where there's like on one hand, a recognition that if it's a study, we should believe it. But on the other hand, no ability to adjudicate what studies we should believe and which ones we shouldn't. And so it, there's, a, I think there's a like weird tension in the way Americans now talk about this sort of stuff. 
Yeah, and I would just add, I mean, I think there's also, it's clear that while we don't, so so the lack of understanding doesn't stop us from glomming on to statistics that seem to tell us a lot. So the focus on vaccine efficacy, for example, as the singular indicator of the quality of the vaccines out there has predominated in the conversation, even though you know, I, I can't count the number of specialists who've been quoted by all types of media outlets saying this is not the only indicator of reference or of importance for adjudicating between vaccines. We're still focused on these efficacy rates, right? So, you know, I, I think I think that's really, you know, to your question, James, I don't know why we don't teach that, I, you know, data literacy or basic understanding. And I think in a different conversation, we talked about how maybe one thing that people need to really have is to have more data literacy, which means that we should actually go out and teach people and not just leave it to them to read, you know, the Guardian or the New York Times to understand what kinds of data are being collected about them, but actually say to them, look, you can have an iPhone or an Android phone, but the fact is these are the things that are being picked up by your phone uh, in your day-to-day -day life. And you need to understand that. Now, whether you stop that, whether you think it's great or you think it's you know some sort of evil incarnate, like that's up to you. That, that's the autonomy bit, right? But we don't, we don't have that. And I think you know, the, the efforts have thus far come from the companies themselves that produce or that make use of the data that, that they gather from, from their uh, users. And I don't think that's the best way to go. I don't think self-regulation has ever really worked that well, uh, especially when, when there's a ton of money at stake. Yeah, and I think too, I mean, I actually have an enormous amount of patience for the fact that our current generation of students grew up with iPhones in the internet and social media. And so they're, their inability to have data, uh, have information literacy and data literacy, I don't think is their fault. And I do think the uh, a position that universities could play in supporting citizens and everything that we've talked about is teaching that at a very basic level. I mean, I know it sounds probably painful and didactic. I actually find it very interesting, um, but it's like they students, I mean, students could know how to code in a sophisticated way. They could know how to build a spaceship, but they, they may not know the difference between a Russian bot sending them something that's true and an, like a real news source. And that's, I don't think that's their fault at this point. And uh, so it seems to me that, thinking about how would you improve deliberation and what citizens are able to do, like what you just said, Wendy, it seems like universities could play a really important role. I assume high schools aren't gonna do it. Although I would just chime in there and say, I actually think it's probably too late by the time they get to college, right? So my daughter is in eighth grade. She's learned more statistics in their advanced eighth grade math classes than I learned until I got to college. But there's been wow. zero discussion of like where the statistics come from like you know where do the numbers come from how to evaluate any of this stuff they talk about sampling a little bit but there's no discussion of how you would use this data that they are using that they are talking about from a mathematical perspective anything other than the math of it and so i think that that sort of breeds this like the numbers are just numbers. And so we don't need to worry about the origins of the numbers, right? They can tell you this many percent of people in this study did that, but no thinking about, you know, where that, where the numbers came from or what they mean. And so I, I actually, I, I might agree with you, James, that I think it won't be taught in high school, but I actually think it probably should be taught in high school. 
and in the context you were just talking about, probably in in conjunction with just sort of uh, how to analyze or how to be a smart information consumer, which is when I teach our introductory statistics class to the undergrads, that's the way I tend to focus the class actually, is how to be a consumer of information because I find that to be something that is often missing and probably more valuable in the day-to-day -day basis for any of us than how to make, actually do research. Well, and even to push this further, is is there ethical training that's required, right? Like if you get pe people have data and science, sociopaths can use data and science to put people in concentration camps, right? Um, but if you don't teach both how the the where science you know data comes from or how science can be used for social good and public policy, then you just basically weaponized information, you know, weaponized data for sociopaths to use it for nefarious ends if they're not also taught ethics. And so do we also need to teach the ethics of all of this as well alongside it so that people are using this information in scientific ways, but using it to try to improve the human condition and make societies more, uh, more just and equal as opposed to using it to allow people to just get away with all manner of bad things. Yeah, and I just, I think, you know, this podcast is really useful and timely because in a sense, you know, social scientists, especially political scientists, have been relatively absent from a lot of these debates around datafication and AI. And I think to the, to the field's detriment, I think because we, we, you know, political scientists in particular think a lot about the interests of, you know, the, the actors at play. And so, who is making that data is really important to us in ways that perhaps other, others might not focus on. I do think that that's one part of where we have the value add and also in terms of thinking about the power relationships between those that are creating the data, creating the algorithms. And I, you know, on this question of ethics, I mean, this is why I think the human rights question is so important because it's not about ethical behavior as in this is a, you know, these, these are the standards of good conduct that everyone should have, that we should try to enforce, you know, like the Hippocratic Oath. This is like, you know, everyone is entitled to certain protections of their being. And so this is why human rights as a language, as a way to frame the debate is so crucial because we haven't thought about data as fundamentally part of who we are. We think about it as something that we make and it's out there and then it's gone. And it's not gone. In fact, someone has gone to the trouble of creating it and they're saving it and using it to, to understand more about you and make predictions about you. But also to the point that we are entitled to protections against egregiously bad behaviors on our data. And I think that is why, you know, I use the, the language of human rights and not the language of ethics. Well, I thought I could I would end big picture by asking you both just kind of what you see as the role of datification and understanding and predicting the trajectory of democracy in the 21st century. That's a really easy question to answer. Uh, I know that's why I, save it. that's why I save it to the end because it's so easy and straightforward. Um, Nick, do you want to go first? I mean, I think what I would say is I think that there are uh, two sort of challenges that we face in democratic systems as a result of these, two major challenges, both of which I think we've already touched on. But I think the first challenge is the way that datafication affects us as citizens in a country, whether that's information acquisition or sort of the sort of violation of some of our um, 
civil civilly protected rights in the in the constitution or other places. And so I think there's sort of a like a mass political behavior angle to this that matters um, that we should be thinking about in terms of how do we try to give people the tools they need to be uh, reasoned decision makers in this new information environment and what sort of both uh, market-based, but probably also regulatory-based decisions or policies needed to take place to help there. And then I think the second one is just that I don't think we've grappled particularly well with the massive concentration of power that's being amassed by tech companies in terms of the amount of data that they hold, in terms of what they can then do with that data, and then how they can leverage that the capital that they have and also the literal data that they have to influence the political system either for ill or for good. Um, and I think those are sort of two big issues moving forward that we as, as, a, as Americans, I guess in this case, at, you know, other than Wendy, um, need, need to struggle with. No. And I don't know that we're, um, I, I don't see it happening yet. I'm not sure we're capable. I don't know that we'll be capable of doing it very well, frankly. Um, Nick, other than that that little aside about my dual citizenship, um, <laughs> I think this is not a debate just for Americans. I think it's a debate for democratic societies generally, and also I think internationally because these tech companies are collecting data the world over. So this is not just a question limited to, to certain countries. I only have one thing to add to Nick's response because I think Nick's response was very good. Um, I think it's also important for democracy that groups recognize their own interests. So, so we talked a little bit about how you know the dominance of the conversation has been largely of big tech companies kind of telling legislators what to do. And I think, you know, Nick, you were speaking to the fact that there's just not really a formidable opposition to that. I think in part because there's a lack of recognition of the significance of a lot of these datafication activities. And so I think part of it is, is helping people understand, you know, going back to this idea of literacy and teaching, teaching people what they could be thinking about and, and seeing if there are interests that arise coherently. And, and that there, I think there are lots of civil society interests at play here. It's just that we, we may not have created those groups yet. And in a democracy, it's really, really important to have this vibrant civil society activity in sort of as a friction to what's going on in the corporate world and, and the political world. Well, great. I think that's a great place to end. Wendy Wong and Nick Weller, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. That was fun. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Vichduck. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.